Yeah, one wonders what would the real use be of a dagger that you could only control with your brain and that would bite you if you're not doing things right. Oh, I'm sure you can find lots of things to do with that. I think this film shows us all the different uses. I mean, you yeah, have sure, flying dagger, dagger, you know, and all that that you direct with your mind, but you could just like you know throw the thing or you know shoot people. I don't know. Where's the fun in that though? Yeah, I mean, don't you want a knife that looks like uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson's Scorpion King? I, I don't He's know. also kind of cute. Depends he, on... is, he is kind of a little imp, isn't he? <laughs> I like him. Oh, excuse uh, me, I just sneezed. I'm glad you started with the magic knife, because I wanted to start with uh, Alec Baldwin's deranged uh, opium lord fingernails. Uh, yes. <laughs> and peeling like bits of meat with it. It's very, very disturbing. What an insane way to start a motion picture. <laughs> and this is a 1994 movie? Boy, is it. And I saw it. I've seen it before. I know that I have. And I barely remember it. And I got to say, one of the things it's I remember was the years. nails and the meat is one of the things I remember. Uh, Becca had also had a similar experience. She'd only seen the second half of this movie on cable. But uh, late, late in the film, she went, wait a second. I have seen this before. I thought this seemed familiar. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we had a lot of fun talking about all that she missed in the uh, bananas first act of this movie. It is uh, certainly something, isn't it? It sort of has the opposite of last week's problem, uh, where Johnny Mnemonic's first half is just constant stuff happening. Um, often with little connection to the previous scene. Um, this just, well, actually, no, I guess this does have a, the same, <laughs> right? This is also similarly just constant bullshit happening uh, until they find the plot of the movie about 30 minutes in. Yeah, so hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We talk about film that you'll never discuss in a film today's course. This week's film is The Shadow, uh, starring Alec Baldwin and others. Um, and, uh, yeah. Uh, we're here to talk about that movie. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And justice for James Hong. I really thought he was going to be in more of this movie. Yeah, he is barely in it, as is everyone, uh, for various reasons. Yeah, what the hell? Why did you get Tim Curry and Ian McKellen and just like put him in three scenes? What's that about? Yeah, or I don't could know. Could they only get him for three scenes? Well, maybe. I don't know. But we're going to talk about this movie. We're going to do it this way, though. We're going to be doing analysis and not review, and that does mean spoilers. But we're going to avoid spoilers the first half of the podcast. The way we do that is with the synopsis. Following the synopsis, we have our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Following those, we do a little mental exercise we call expanding the syllabus, and then finally we get down to business, and that's when all spoiler bets are off is at the business time. And There's kicking music to let you know that that's about to happen. So, without any further ado... Arthur, do you have a synopsis for us today? Uh, I most certainly do, Dustin. Following the Great War, Lamont Cranston finds himself as a drug kingpin warlord in Mongolia until a holy man of the Tolku recruits him to fight for a purer cause in New York City. That's one way to get rid of a white man in your land. Lamont finds himself able to cloud the minds of men to hide his appearance and appear only as a dark figure. When a descendant of Genghis Khan arrives in the Big Apple, uh, Lamont finds himself outmatched. What evil lies in the hearts of men? Only the shadow knows. Yes, in the screenwriters. Mm, right. uh, okay, well, all right. I, <laughs> what else can be said after that? Dalton, do you like this movie? Why or why not? This movie is a Jack Donaghy heavy episode of 30 Rock. Uh, Alec Baldwin is fully uh, doing Donaghy, or I guess I should say he is fully doing 
uh, Cranston uh, when that show <laughs> starts hitting the airwaves about 10 years after this. Uh, I don't know, man. This movie is, I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me while watching it, but just now in our, our banter, I am realizing this story does have a lot in common with Johnny Mnemonic. Uh, largely, it's mid-90s-ness, uh, of course, but the, there, there is a similarity in terms of just sort, sort of the same things are broken with it, right? They both have a, a an exposition dump uh, scroll of text. Uh, weird that this movie saves it for after the there's a prologue before the text dump. Weird choice. <laughs> weird choice. This movie is full of bizarre choices uh, that I'm not sure how I feel about. Uh, it, it also does have the unfortunate um, chicken and egg problem uh, with, with Batman. Obviously, this uh, mm-hmm. character, the Shadow, predates uh, the the Dark Knight by a quite a few years um and bob kane you know famously sort of uh mentioned the shadow as one of his inspirations when they, they started working on batman um, but obviously this movie can't help but exist in the monolithic success that was 89's uh, batman from tim mm-hmm. burton um and it is just such a a big cultural moment in film that that summer not just batman but 89 really is kind of obviously blockbuster filmmaking was a thing already but it sort of is the year where the model as we know it starts to work right everybody knew what movies were going to definitely be be hits or at the very least they you know they had gambled on which ones they were sure were hits they had the the ones they weren't sure about but merchandising uh being tied into the blockbusters sort of has started so when this film comes around five years later it is just so stuck in the shadow whether it is uh by accident or by you know an attempt to rip off a much more successful film is hard to say Although this score does feel indebted to Danny Elfman a lot, huh? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, sort of the same uh, Art Deco goth aesthetic, aesthetic said that uh, word so many times on last week's episode. I don't know how to say it anymore. Uh, but, it, but it is beholden to a lot of this sort of the same visual iconography as mm-hmm. Batman. And that, that just hurts it. Like, you can't help but compare this movie to that better movie. Um, and, and it really does run through. Like I kept wondering, is that going to stop being a problem in this? And it never really did, unfortunately, uh, because everything this movie tries to do that does better. Th- this tries to navigate that sort of uh, serious, self-serious uh, and campy at the same time. Uh, that I, I think <clears throat> even you know Batman and Forever and Batman and Robin to some extent, uh, you know those later Schumacher Batman's. I think they navigate that very well, and, and so do, do Burton's films. And, and this just can't figure it out and i think that really does become the problem here uh because it is messy and it is broken much like johnny mnemonic but i i like that film and the reason i like that film is it does at the very least feel like it has a handle on its tone even when four movies are happening at the same time they, they usually are of a piece with each other when this movie has you know too many plates spinning at once it really does just throw you for a loop and uh, look it's fun to laugh at it's entertaining for sure i can't say it's a good movie and i can't say that anybody should watch it because it's pretty gross um you know i'll tell you what though there is some fun imagery um his weird uh honked up face uh when he's uh in shadow mode is fun i like the reveal that it's magic and not prosthetics that he's wearing i I also like the reveal uh of uh, his cab buddy having to see the transformation and getting grossed out by it uh Peter Boyle, by the way, playing his cab buddy. That's fun casting. Yes. Uh, and that, that is one of the strengths of this film is a truly bananas cast uh, all the way down. Like it, just a bunch of heavy hitters who don't really get much to do. 
but I, I don't know, man. Baldwin feels all wrong, and maybe it's because I am uh, I'm too poisoned with Thirty Rock Brain at this point to to see him not comedically. But he's funny. Like he he's been funny for his entire career. He's got a lot of comedy under his belt, and there's a reason for that. And I I just think sort of smirky, smarmy charm on him reads too comedically. Uh, it doesn't ever read as heroic or mysterious it always reads as wacky uh in this movie and uh look that's all i've got uh do i like speaking of moments that really feel like a 30 rock scene do i love the moment where uh cranston and con meet each other and there's the where'd you get the tie brooks brothers like that whole that's funny there's a good banter going on between the two of them Mm -hmm. is john lone being asked to do some pretty gross stuff in this movie as she won con yeah sure but as a uh, you know an actor trained in the Peking Opera, he's really good at it. He's good in this movie. He's good at the dumb stuff that it asks him to do because he's a damn professional. Um, and I guess that's all I, I have to say about the film that is like unabashedly positive. Is I do think everybody is a professional. Everybody shows up and knows what movie they're in. It's just not a very good movie. Uh, and I, I think that was a problem we had last week with uh, John Mnemonic. Is there there is sort of a uh, an issue where every actor. It has sort of a different energy that they've taken from the movie. I, I think everybody here more or less knows what they're supposed to be doing, uh, especially Tim Curry, whose American accent is uh, <laughs> truly a, a delight, uh, sort of doing this weird, petulant 30s guy stuff. Um, I don't know. It, it's weird to me that after Batman, the lesson that studios took was, ah, that's what we need, more pulp heroes from the 30s on big screens, as opposed to, ah, people like capes, <laughs> people like superheroes. No, 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 <laughs> people loved 30s pulp stuff because those are the guys that were in charge of the studios in the early to mid-90s. Um, weird movie, weird cultural artifact. I'm glad we watched it, but I don't think it's very good. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton, sir. What do you say, Arthur? What do you think of The Shadow? Is there darkness lying in your heart? Oh, always yes. Um, I think that uh, I, I think there's a little role reversal this week because I, I'm a little warmer on this one than Dalton is. Uh, so it's, it is kind of a fun inverse of last week's uh, episode in many ways. Uh, is it good? I don't know. Uh, you know, I think it has its moments. Uh, I, I think yes, it is definitely in the wake of Batman, as I, I will get into in my syllabus and many other movies of this era are. Um, you know, that being said, I, John Lone is a high point in this movie. You, you know, I think Russell McKay, he has a way of finding memorable, charismatic villains and, and having a, them put together a really fun performance. We talked uh, quite a bit about, uh, you know, what's his name in Highlander? I, I can't uh, remember. Clancy Brown. Yeah, Clancy Brown. All right. Uh, and John Lone really feels like he's in that role here. And I think he does just a phenomenal job. He, he, and you're right, hit that chemistry that he has uh, with uh, with Baldwin is is great. Uh, every moment they're together, when they first meet, uh, when they're at the uh, the restaurant, uh, when they have the the Brooks Brothers showdown, uh, they're all very memorable. The ending, uh, you know, uh, the production design, as you said, uh, does evoke uh, the the Burton uh, element, but I think it does enough to stand on its own. I do. I, I think that pneumatic tube system shot when we're following those uh, through the city, I think that hall of mirrors at the end, I think the hotel monolith interiors, uh, that shifting floor, uh, things like cool that. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think that uh, on the surface level, yes, it does feel very much a Burton's uh, style, uh, but I think it does more with the interiors uh, in a lot of way and, and some exteriors in a way that, uh, gives it a little more 
depth and substance than than uh, Burton's films. The you know I think they're purely look. I don't think the inner spaces, the interior spaces, maybe outside of Penguin's um, you know sewer fortress. Uh, I, I I don't know. Um, I, I think there's a, a little more here uh, in in the production design. I think it's pretty cool. I, I like Goldsmith's score, but yeah, as you said, yes, it's definitely evoking uh, Elfman uh, heavily. Uh, but I, I think it does work. Um, uh, the cinematography, I, I like. I, I I think there's this really cool thing that happens uh, two or three times in the movie where uh, there's this uh, kind of heavy close up of someone in in, in the foreground uh, juxtaposed with the conversation in the background. I, I think it's a really cool shot. It happens a couple of times uh, throughout and, and really uh, a unique setup. I, I do think McKellen and Mar- uh, Curry are, are the weakest thing here. Uh, this is an early Hollywood role for McKellen. Uh, and you know, he's on, on record saying he doesn't do great with the American accent stuff. Uh, it doesn't do well when he's playing American. And so I, I think that whole thing just doesn't work. Uh, yeah, he's, he's puttering and murmuring a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and just that whole little subplot, I think of them, I, I think that whole thing could have been cut in, in some ways. I know that's where we have to, you know, our MacGuffin is of, we have to get the bomb. Uh, but I think you could have found a way around that uh, because I, I don't know that any of that works. And even Curry, like, doesn't quite work here for me. Uh, I, I think the the scene in the the whatever the ball of water is at the end, mm-hmm. uh, I think I think Curry there is fun. But I, other parts, he doesn't feel quite like Curry. I don't know what it is. Uh, so I think it goes back to that tonal dissonance that you were mentioning um, because it is kind of back and forth. There's, <laughs> there's a... Uh, a hard cut from a guy committing suicide to uh, uh, to Baldwin and uh, Penelope Ann Miller having a conversation about what what to do next. Weird uh, choice. It's <laughs> and there's just this absurdity to it. I mean, and it comes back to that Brooks Brothers joke for me. I, I think those mm-hmm. moments really land for me. And, and you know, I don't necessarily think it's a good movie, but uh, there's a, a I have a fondness for it for some reason. Well, and uh, I think I, that totally makes sense to me. Arthur, mm-hmm. because those are the I, I don't know maybe it's i i'm i didn't give the movie enough credit for making those moments deliberate because they are definitely some of those are very much structured as jokes uh, i guess i like that's when i like the movie the best is when it's letting itself be super jokey yeah and uh i, I wonder if there's a britishness to the humor that mckay brings i'm not sure but uh you know uh i i like it i i enjoyed it i had a good time with it uh i'm i'm quite interested in it as a curio of the time i think more than anything i i'm kind of fascinated by this post batman pre-marvel period of these these heroes you know i i and i'll get into that later i guess but yeah uh, that, really, that's where i'm at i'm looking forward to hearing you get into that more arthur because yeah i i agree it's a really interesting period in, in studio filmmaking dustin do you find yourself at a, a point between the two of us as you did last week um maybe question mark uh what i find is this the story sucks i don't care i want a story about somebody who was a bad guy who became a good guy who wrestles with wanting to be the bad guy again or wrestles over his guilt and shame and i don't really get that he's too stock he's too uh Mm. he's too static as a character there's no arc for Mm. um alec baldwin's shadow uh or lamont cranston character and so i think that makes it fundamentally uninteresting as a science fiction character or as a uh, as a not science fiction character well i guess kind of science fiction but really as a superhero 
character. Even Michael Keaton's Batman, though somewhat one-dimensional, is wrestling with the duality of his identities. I don't really get that uh, with uh, this uh, character from that. And I, and I think that's really what needs to work for these kinds of movies uh, to work. It's some kind of depth, some kind of arc. And, you know, it's, it's fine that, I mean, I like that they got the origin story done in eight and a half minutes. I actually liked that quite a bit. And this crazy sort of over the top sort of villain, but then I want Lamont Cranston to be dealing with that in some yeah, way. Apparently, um, they they had planned to go back to the Hall of Mirrors, and Juwan uh, was going to show him uh, all of his terrible deeds as a opium lord. Uh, but a, a big earthquake killed their uh, their mirror set, so they didn't get to shoot any of that stuff. But even then, that's too little, too late. I agree, and I, I almost wonder if the I, I I agree with you. I appreciate the judicious exposition of the origin story i wonder if the movie works better if we don't get that information until later though oh yeah that that that, yeah that would be fair as well which is sort of the new the new hack uh for for writing stuff right like that's um the the damon lindelof playbook of making your mystery box be character motivation right and that's basically all the show wandavision has been this and this and its entire run um it's cheap but i think it works and i think it would have worked for the shadow's benefit Absolutely. But I will say this. This is a thing that does work, is production design and aesthetics. Mm -hmm. This movie is pretty. I like Art Deco. I like 30s style. I like men in hats. I like women in fur uh, stoles. I like that stuff. I like the uh, interior design, the patterns that are used for the drapery, the way in which, you know, the, the big fancy mansion that Lamont Cranston lives in, and also the sanctum how those things are designed. I like 30s technology and trying to figure out ways to design things using what they have. The fact that there is something science fiction-y about this uh, video camera that he's got, and it looks very much as a part of the 30s. There's a real kind of you know depression punk kind of aesthetic yeah. you know, <laughs> at work here, although the movie does not seem to be aware that there's a depression going on during this particular God, time. boy, does it totally ignore that the depression's happening. Yeah, which is kind of a problem. We'll get to that later. But uh, I think aesthetically, it, it really does a good job of realizing the 30s better than the 30s. The 30s of this film looks better than the 30s of a James Cagney uh, Scarface kind of 30s. I, I, I appreciate the look of it even better because the reimagined the, the the malleable memory of it is aestheticized in such a way that it does become that kind of dreamland that I like to live in as a film watcher. And uh, so I enjoy that about everything. I love the hotel. I love the, you know, the, the revolving, you know, platform floor and the, all the design that's in that platform floor. Uh, when Khan and uh, Lamont have their big, uh, confrontation in the hotel dig all that but i just i just don't care about the story at all at all not a little not 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 a not a flying fig and so for me it's a big stinker but i like looking at it the whole time whatever that means yeah i mean there is some really fantastic miniature work uh a couple of times uh throughout this film and um i, I don't know it, it, i it, there's moments where it works a lot better for me than the cityscapes that we do get in those uh, early uh, Burton Schumacher Batmans, um, which, uh, you know, as far as I know, also used miniatures, uh, miniatures uh, for some of their big cityscape shots. But there's a couple in the shadow that, yeah, are just gorgeous to look at, right? Yeah. I mean, 
really cool, big, big Blade Runner vibes, uh, as you said, Depression Punk, uh, and I, I think that's that's pretty, uh, a pretty good way to uh, nail this movie's aesthetic down. I, I like this blending of of magic and science fiction going on throughout too. It's it's fun stuff. Um, it's now time for for the the big times where we we expand our brains. We're gonna get a little galaxy brain here, isn't that right, fellas? I guess so. That is the plan. I hope. Well, Arthur, uh, you've been doing this last couple of weeks. Why don't you tell people uh, what happens when we expand the syllabus for them? Yeah, so we're going to do a little thought exercise where we uh, develop a course syllabus uh, where we will be using uh, the, the text of the week. In this case, it's the shadow to uh, as part of or the basis for a module or a course, uh, the collegiate level. And we talk about the readings, articles, books, essays, and films that we might do alongside with that and, and what we hope to cull from, from that example. There you go. Very good. That's exactly the plan. Arthur, what is your syllabus looking like? Well, I, I really do want to hone in on, on that in the wake of Batman, right? That, that period in the 90s uh, where the studios were constantly trying to capitalize on the success of Batman and Dalton brought up the point that uh you know the studios turned to these 30s pulp heroes um thinking that's what audiences wanted I, I don't think that's really why they pivoted that way I think it was more out of that's what they had the resources for they they went cheap uh to get these IPs or they came up with their own IPs Darkman is the other one that's kind of lumped in here even though it's not based on an IP, but it was an original idea Apparently, and it very uh, much echoes, you know, the shadow in, in many ways. Uh, speaking of dark man, uh, I guess Raimi wanted on this project at, at least one yeah. point in its development, which I think is interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, Sam Raimi's the shadow is an interesting thought experiment as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's really fascinating to take a look at not only how Batman directed uh, or guided the ship for you know quote unquote comic book movies in the 90s um but also how you know i think most of these movies kind of unfairly were held up against batman uh critically right i, I think you know the the course uh, there are a number of articles about this that kind of look at i, I was you know doing some google foo uh, in, in prep for this, and there, were, you know, I was wondering kind of if there were articles, and there were no, uh, uh, several articles about this kind of period in the '90s, examining how this kind of came to light, uh, and uh, you know, Sony or you know, I don't, I don't remember, but you know, Disney wanted to get one, and this studio had to get theirs, and uh, and so we kind of got this weird cycle uh, that's you know, the starts with Dick Tracy, and then we get. Uh, the shadow and then we get the rocketeer and then we've got uh, the phantom those are kind of the the main i think core texts uh cinematically to look at and, and i think all of these movies in hindsight you know some 30 years later now uh, we can look back and and kind of i think piece them together in a, in a better light than than what we did and so i think it'd be interesting to look at you know in many ways, Dick Tracy's a vanity project for Warren Beatty, I think. Uh, and, you know, the movie Warren Beatty wanted to get made, he, he pushed to have made, and he didn't get the green light until the success of Batman. And so a lot of that movie does kind of get compared to Batman, but it, there's a lot there to kind of unpack, I think, uh, you know, thematically, theoretically, uh, analytically, 
uh, about how that that comes together and what that looks like and how that performs uh, as a film on its own outside of the shadow of Batman. Uh, and the same with The Rocketeer. The Rocketeer is a movie I love. I think it is a very pure movie. I think it foreshadows Captain America, the first Avenger, in many ways, not only because of Joe Johnson, but just uh, I think many of the core tenets of that film and the Rocketeer is a is based on a comic that came later than the third. You know, the Rocketeer wasn't around. I don't, I don't believe in the thirties, but it's inspired by those same pulp stories as the Shadow and uh, Doc Sampson. And and Doc Sampson's another one uh, that kind of gets brought up in this conversation, even though a movie hasn't been made. It's been, you know it's been in developmental hell, you know, for decades it, it seems, you know, but. Uh, He's another of those those heroes of this period, and then the Phantom, uh, again taking a a an actor of, of some renown uh, in Billy Zane and trying to base a franchise around him. And I think we actually do get a few Phantom sequels uh, straight to video, uh, not with Billy Zane, but um, and I think a TV show as well. But you know, the Phantom is another one that's trying to capture in this market but it also is doing this kind of indiana jones adventure thing uh, and it feels very i think maybe the most successful in capturing that 30s aesthetic that it's going for uh but i think it, it is interesting to look at these movies in light of you know how they performed what you know why the studios chose these films what was the intention there as well as you know the unfairness of critiquing them against Batman and at the same time Batman was the you know really only measuring stick for this sort of film and so i think there's a really interesting you know discussion of critical analysis that takes place of of studio filmmaking that takes place and uh just really diving into that i think that's where i would go with this course for sure. I think that sounds amazing. I am all about that and fascinated by those ideas, mostly because I lived through it and uh, would want to see uh, what the thirties from that. Yes, correct. You set them up and I'll knock them down. You're <laughs> just the funniest guy I ever met. Um, hey, Dalton, make me not mad at you. Uh, what do you have? Well, well I'll, I'll talk about the funniest guy that I ever met. His name was Alec Baldwin. That's not he's, not, <laughs> he's not that funny. But he's kind of funny, and I want to talk about his funny-ass career. Uh, that's right, I'm, I'm far too tired from uh, rambling about cyberpunk last week, so we're back to the well again. It's another star study. We're going to look at the career of one Alec Baldwin, uh, because of course, what are we going to do? Talk about one of the other Baldwin brothers, or talk about them as a whole? No, you talk about them as a whole by talking about Alec. Um, they have all had weird careers, but truly, Alec's career is is really deranged when you look at it on paper. Um, I always assumed that the uh, the Baldwin acting clan must have had there must have been like a, a daddy or grandpa Baldwin that was in the business, but as far as I know. Uh, it's just the brothers. Like it, it was them that made, made the Baldwin family an acting family. Uh, I, I did a little bit of peeking, which I, I know, never occurred to me to do. Uh, but I, I think his parents were, yeah, they were fo a football coach and a high school teacher respectively. Um, so I, I'm just, it's an interesting career. And I think the more we look at it, the more it is clear. He, he never was meant to be a leading man. Um, we'll talk about his kind of his, his troubled personal life. Sure. Uh, I, I think we always plan to get on get into that when we talk about a star study because I think 
the concept of celebrity, uh, especially when you get later into a, a big name, marquee actor's career, you have to talk about kind of the celebrity as a concept. But we'll, we'll start. Um, I don't know if we're going to go back into his like super early TV work, although we might. But really, we, we got to go to uh, his his breakout role in Beetlejuice. Uh, also, you know, he's got some supporting roles around that same time and stuff like Working Girl and Talk Radio. Uh, 88 really is just a big year for him. He's got one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, five uh, releases uh, in 88 alone. So that, that is kind of the moment where he lands uh, post doing a bunch of TV work earlier in the decade. Uh, but I definitely want to start with Beetlejuice, uh, a film that kind of cements his comedic bona fides. Uh, then we're going to, of course, talk about the Jack Ryan movies, uh, The Hunt for Red October, and um, oh, what's the other one he did? Or did he only just do the one? Did he do another one? I think he just had the one. I think Harrison had two. That's right. Harrison had the two, and he just had the one, of course. I think. Uh, I think we'll, that's we'll correct doing, as well. I think that's right, yeah. But we'll talk about Hunt for Red October. We'll talk about The Shadow sort of in this 90s period of him transitioning to late 80s, early 90s period of him transitioning to a leading man status. Uh, there in between the two, we have Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, of course. Uh, We've got to talk about Always Be Selling. Are you kidding me? Uh, always be closing, I mean. Um, it's the ABCs, isn't it? Um, as I recall, that uh, role of his in, in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is uh, something that uh, Mamet wrote for the movie because he wanted Baldwin to come up from the stage show and they couldn't get him in one of the big, the big roles. Um, but again, I, I think that moment kind of both cements him as a, oh, look, Alec Baldwin's in this guy. And he will continue to get some mileage out of that and things like The Departed uh, for, I don't know, the rest of his career. I, I think he, he frequently shows up to be Alec Baldwin. Uh, the, the latter um, Mission Impossible movies, I think, do this pretty well with him. But I think starting with Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, and just showing the effectiveness of uh, of Baldwin in one to three scenes, I, I don't think you can understate it. I think he is really good when used sparingly. Um, I, it might sound a little mean. Uh, but again, I think his persona is too weird because after the shadow, his career kind of flames out. And that's when we're going to pivot to kind of talking about his voiceover work in, in the, the late nineties, early aughts with things like final fantasy, the spirits within you guys remember that one. I sure do. I went and saw that in theaters. I was very excited about it. Uh, Cats and dogs. Yeah. His career is bananas, which of course, uh, the, all of these things lead to his, uh, rebirth as a TV star on 30 rock. Uh, it is, uh, of course, uh, that familiarity with 30 Rock that sort of poisoned me against uh, the shadow a little bit because there is just too much of a similarity uh, between that character of Jack Donaghy and, and the uh, the alter ego of the shadow, uh, Cranston. Um, but I, again, I think it's just a weird pivot in his career for his, his movie roles to start drying up uh, and for him to kind of find the second life uh, on a network sitcom, and then just sort of becoming a Lorne Michaels staple after that. We do have to, of course, talk about the very bizarre and surreal period of him playing the president of the United States on SNL, and not mm-hmm. very well at that. Not not the best impression in the world. Uh, it is sort of, uh, isn't it funny that Alec Baldwin's doing it? is really just the shtick of that whole joke for four years. Uh, but again, in between that, you have uh, or during that, I should say, you have uh, the Mission Possible films, uh, Black Klansman, a couple of other films where he, again, is showing up in that, hey, Alec Baldwin's here role. And contemporarily with that, you also have Boss Baby, sort of him making the the most of his uh, 
voiceover work from you know a decade prior uh, and that those are the kind of the big ones i want to hit up top but i i think if we dig deeper into his filmography we'll we'll find other films that we should definitely discuss but the, the ones i've kind of rattled off i i think are useful uh, at the very least as a starting uh point or a jumping off point but he, he's just a strange actor that i i think it's hard to say why there's not a movie star persona we can associate with alec baldwin right you know, there, there's never a point in that, that heyday of his in the 90s where he, he submits kind of what his deal as an actor is. And I think that has a lot to do with why he doesn't kind of end up becoming a leading man and, and has to uh, have this really interesting comedy, uh, well, I guess I should say career pivot back to comedy. It's almost like what would have happened if everybody had seen through Forrest Gump's bullshit and Tom Hanks had to go back to being a comedy guy, right? It, it is sort of a, a weird... Uh, what if universe, uh, I, I guess, for, for Alec Baldwin's career, because he definitely was on his way to being made into uh, a leading man with, with the Jack Ryan stuff and with, with this film, uh, which of course uh, failed to launch its franchise. So that's it. It's a star study on Baldwin and his just, I, I truly deranged uh, uh, tenure as a star of uh, screen, both big and small. Uh, Dustin, what are you going to do with this bananas little film called The Shadow? Well, I think I'm going to really focus in on the thing that I like about the movie, and that's its aesthetics, and that it makes the 30s look better than the 30s, because everything's Art Deco. The 30s weren't like that. The billboards yeah. weren't all the llama camel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, funny billboard. You know, great. You know, they, they, it wasn't all that, but the movie makes it all that in a way that it's endlessly fascinating. And so I think what I would want to do is use this as part of some other course in which we were thinking about film aesthetics and the way in which it remembers it better than it was, or at least more mm. than it was. And so, you know, thinking about the 30s, the shadow being the example of the 30s, doing the 30s more than the 30s, even did the 30s, and then maybe something like uh, thinking about the 50s. And uh, we've got uh, we've got George Lucas doing American Graffiti, remembering the 50s even cooler than the 50s really were. And then Robert Zemeckis also approaching the 50s even cooler than they really were with Back to the Future Part 1. And taking those films and going at it. Uh, to go back to the 30s, we're moving forward in time as we're thinking about the production date of these films. Uh, Arthur's already mentioned it, but the 30s and the 40s are much cooler in The Rocketeer than they really were then. And the Rocketeers' aesthetics themselves, the way they're recapturing, again, the, the diesel punk of that moment, uh, I think is really, really pretty fascinating. And it does seem like there's only a few decades that really lend themselves well to this. As, hmm. as, as yeah, I, I, was just, I was just about to ask you about uh, Linklater's films, you know, uh, Days and Confused for the 70s and Everybody Wants Some for the 80s. Do you feel like those are kind of in that same pocket as well? Or I, I, don't, maybe... I don't know oh, that Linklater's 70s is better than the 70s yeah. as much as it's just like sort of like, you know, clearly the 70s, this is how we're highlighting. It, 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 they feel more like period pieces. I mean, They you feel think, more grounded to yeah, you? Yeah, you think like Coppola's 40s or, excuse me, 50s and 60s in The Godfather's mm. Parts 1 and 2. It's not really like the 60s, the 50s, like up in your face. It's just they're period films. Sure. Right? And, and I think Linklater kind of falls in that same kind of category. And I, I think there is a certain bombacity to mm. the technology, fashion, and art, artistic aesthetic movements that allow the 50s uh, – yeah, the 50s, the 30s, and the 80s especially – 
to be recreated in this way. And so moving into the 80s, I, I think a good example here is Stranger Things. I think we'd look at a few episodes of that. But really, I think we'd look at the uh, back-to-back films of Panos Cosmatos, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, and Mandy. Ooh, and, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, both of which are period pieces. Yeah, both of which are trying to really tease out the, the weirder ends of the 80s aesthetics. Right. And, and and so and in the same way that Robert Zemeckis is not really just trying to give us a realistic picture of the fifties, he's really trying to make the fifties the coolest the coolest version of the fifties, right? The better version of the fifties, uh, yeah. In in Back to the Future, in the same way, Cosmatos, although he's got a much weirder set of concerns in Beyond the Black Rainbow and in um, Mandy, still his eighties that's being realized there is kind of the best parts of that aesthetics. And then the last thing for the eighties that I would want to use is paranormal activity three. And that's getting into the nineties a little bit too. I was, I, I've been thinking this whole time, like have, have we, are we far enough out from the nineties to start getting these sorts of movies for that decade? We're, we're, I think we're pressing towards it for sure. Yeah, for but sure. The, I mean, that VHS analog. aesthetic, that yeah. sectional couch, that uh, particular kind of lighting and just uh, architecture of the home itself all of that stuff is the very cool of what upper middle class 80s life looked like. And again, it's all of the cliches, but they're not done in such a way like, oh, that's so 80s. Like uh, you might do, I can't even think of an example where you have, uh, I can't even think of an example right off the top of my head. But, you know, where you're like, you're clearly just signaling the, well, I, well, you can look at the It movies where, you know, you've got a Wham poster. Or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah, hey, it's the 80s. Exclamation I was going to say, I was going to mention the X-Men prequels movies, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it works as well for sure. Like I was thinking of Lady Bird. The... What's that? Which is a little later. Ooh, but yeah, for the aughts though, yeah, I mean, and I I, I wonder if Lady Bird's still kind of more in that, that, that Linklater realm, right? That it is just kind of a an accurately observed version as yeah. opposed to a, a sort of blown out bombastic version. Like I, I'm looking for a hyper version that's not mm-hmm. just you know again sort of decade signaling either you know with like yeah. decade jokes but some ways in which it's it's realizing it, it lovingly realizing that moment in a way that is also hyper and extensive beyond just the aesthetic of that moment all of what is most visually interesting come to the fore you know I, I think about especially that uh, uh, whatever enchanted enchantment under the sea dance um, yeah you know, especially back the future is okay. Not everyone dressed that well. Not everyone looked that good. Those dresses were not that amazing. The band was not quite that, you know, uh, anywhere in California or anywhere else in the uh, continental United States in 1954. But that version of it is our memory now of 1954. Uh, well, here's go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I was just kind of Googling this, and, and here's a big one I think that popped, and that's Captain Marvel, which really tried to do the 90s thing. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, your blockbusters, your Nine Inch Nails, it's 1990 for sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and okay, so the blockbuster thing I think really does work, but again, is it just sort of, it, it doesn't feel the same to me, though. Like, you, no, did, it, you needle drop a Nirvana song, cool. But, do you think it's because we're still so close to it? Maybe, I don't know. And maybe because yeah, I was I alive want- for it? I don't know. I yeah. think there, you have a good point, though. These other examples you've mentioned, you were alive during the 80s, right? I was like, alive, yeah. I was around, yeah. but I was small. Yeah, but but to, to your point, though, about aliveness versus not aliveness, no, I, I think it's more the, the examples you've brought do kind of highlight this this sort of 
giga version of the aesthetic of the time, mm-hmm. right? Th- this sort of really broad brush. And I, yeah, Captain Marvel looks like a Marvel movie. It does not look like a 90s movie, uh, or at the very least what we remember 90s films looking like. And I think that we've talked a lot about this period of 90s films kind of hearkening back towards decades prior uh, in sort of classical Hollywood you know, design uh, or structure. And I, yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, Dustin, but I, I too am struggling to like put a name on it or think of more examples than you've already brought. But I, I think I'm starting to understand what you're getting at as far as the, the ways in which some of these, these works you've mentioned really find a way to hone in on the time period. Uh, yeah, an example of being, again, The Rocketeer. The Rocketeer definitely is a 30s film, but the, its aesthetic is bigger than the 30s mm-hmm. and the 40s, or early 40s, you know, late 30s, early 40s. And, and I, I'm not sure what that hyper uh, realization really, how to, how to pin down that term, but that's what I'd want to explore and how that's achieved and what the uh, what the memory effect is of it. Because again, my memory of the 50s is largely inspired by Back to the Future. For sure. Or Grease, for instance. Yeah. Another, Greece, yeah. another one I was thinking of when I was like, you, you mentioned the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. I was like, yeah, not everybody uh, was dressed that cool or figured out how to build a hot rod and shop class out of stolen car parts. Right. <laughs> so, well, there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. I think it's now time to get down to business. Man, I feel like we've really been down to business for a while now. We've that, that started. Fun aesthetic uh, analysis there. Uh, well, does anybody want to? We've we've sort of uh, sort of started doing this new bit where one of us introduces the, the the things that happen in each segment of the show. I did this part last week, but I don't want to do it again. It was hard. Dustin, why don't you tell the people <laughs> what happens once we put on our business socks? When we get down to business, we do this. We sort of expand on some of the things that we might have already mentioned in expanding the syllabus as uh, theoretical ways that we can think about the movie, but we get much more directed at the film itself, and we begin to look at the pieces of the text. And begin to see what it does and how it's doing what it does and how that relates to various theoretical frames, whether that be authorship, whether that be uh, various, uh, you know, gender and or identity politics related issues, economic Marxist issues, literary issues and other uh, psychological lenses of analysis. We apply all that stuff to the film in question and move from there. So that's business. That's business. And speaking of identity stuff, boy, I did, you know, you never expect to talk about racism two episodes in a row, but you probably always should, <laughs> you considering should. all the Hollywood movies we do. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that you, you mentioned all the things from the 30s this movie uh, uh, brings to the 90s, and it, it sure does bring a yellow peril in Orientalism from the 30s uh, like they never stopped being around. Um, it's yeah, pretty... un- unironically, un reflectively yeah. just 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 imports it right uncritically yeah and that's part of why i kept making the jokes about uh, this being a 30 rock episode because uh you know respect to the, the the cast and crew of that very good sitcom but it's racist as hell and uh it does it uh, to asian people a lot and it's weird that uh american media just decided that that was a uh a, a well, I was gonna. It's not even an ethnic group; just a large chunk of the global population that it was okay to be mean to for far too many decades and was appropriate. Like uh, America realized that there were uh, things you couldn't do for for some ethnic groups, uh, and just kept steamrolling right along being racist to Asians. And it's I don't know if that's about more just like a demographics, like population numbers. Uh, you know, uh, just being a, a smaller minority group in the in the U.S. than say you know. Uh, Latinos or, or African-Americans, but God, is it weird? It it just feels so out of plate. Like, again, 
we we should not be surprised. And yet, as you said, Dustin, it, the way in which it is just one for one imported from like the, the 30s is, is kind of maddening, whether it's, you know, uh, Alec Baldwin's uh, Cold Open or just the 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 specter of Shiwan Khan as this uh, conqueror from the East. Uh, it's weird. Uh, speaking of, uh, as late recently as like 2008, um, I think 8% of the men in Mongolia uh, had genetics that made it look like they might be related to Genghis Khan. So uh, definitely no final descendant yet. We, we haven't really reached that point. That's neither here nor there. It was just a fun piece of trivia I picked up on. Um, I, I don't know if we want to say anything else. Like, I don't know if we have time to sort of get into the historical context for all this stuff happening uh, in the U.S. in the early, late 19th, early 20th century, you know, the, the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, the Transcontinental Railroad, like all of these factors that that sort of led to uh, this, this pervasive, um, you know, anti-Chinese sentiment, but really anti-Asian sentiment on, on a larger scale. Um, I guess I just want to name it, make sure we called it out, uh, but I don't know that there's more to get into other than uh, you know, Khan as this this conqueror from the East, which is sort of a trope throughout Western fiction that even, you know, predates um, Hollywood by, you know, a couple centuries. I would like to name drop my pet theory as to why um, Asian slurs and uh, sort of unacceptable things for other minorities have can sort of maintained some traction, you know, in uh, white discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and I think it relates to class. And uh, it's that's a, sort of uh, the, the, the good minority uh, stereotype. Yes, shit. the good minority stuff. And I think white people are afraid of lower class people generally and therefore are more worried that there will be violence done against them if they offend them. I think that's one part of it. Mm. And I think the other part is that Asian Americans also recognize their tenuous place in uh, their class society, that, they're, they're, that, they're, that they are treated as guests – rather than as people who belong there and they feel the need or requirement to smile and nod at terrible jokes. And mm. that class becomes a recursively repressive institution uh, that works against them. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you're, you're too that's my theory. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a decent analysis. Boy, uh, for damage control purposes, this feels like a good time to bring up that Minari is available for rent right now. I, I finally caught up with it. It's really good. Uh, speaking of this, this sort of intersection of you know immigration and class stuff, um, I, I think that the film gets gets at that really well. Um, do we want to talk about the sort of larger, um, you know, Dustin, you, you being a sort of a, a expert on Dracula, I, I, I think you could probably speak to this this trope of, of the Eastern invader that sort of is, whether it's, you know, the, the Eurasian steppes uh, or the Far East um, or the Middle East in some cases. This is a trope that exists in Western fiction for a very long time. It does. And it, I mean, it really just becomes a force of othering and invasion. I mean, it comes all back to the Ottoman Empire. I think it's where sort of the initial um, Eastern fear begins Well, hey, there. look, Genghis Khan got into Eastern Europe, man, yes. like Central and Eastern Europe. So, I mean, there, there was a fear, but look, it's not like we didn't invade that half of the world a shit ton even before uh, mechanized warfare. Correct. And I, I think it just it has a way of holding on as to there is where we are, that's the West. There's where they are, that is the East. And uh, that's how you create an other. And, of course, the greatest threat of the other is that they would be financially that they would financially advance and they could only do so 
by uh, nefarious means, that they'd also gain political advancement, again, only through ruthless means, and that they would gain biological advancement only by seductive and uh, rapacious means. Ooh, and well, now that's – you've sort of already started to get there. Um, now I think is a good time as you started talking up talking about the, the seductiveness uh, and the, the, the nefariousness, right? We're ta- starting to think about organized crime, the opium trade, these things that are, get really – uh, tied with uh, uh, Chinese immigration to the United States in, in the early 20th century. But uh, also within that exoticism you have in these stories, uh, going to the East and learning the secret stuff, right? I'm just going to name uh, some characters off the top of my head really fast. Uh, Doctor Strange, Batman, The Shadow, uh, Tom Cruise and The Last Samurai. You're starting to see a pattern here, right? Iron Fist, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Iron Fist, sure. Oh my God, forgot about him. Yeah, uh, for obvious reasons, because you know nobody remembers Iron Fist except for Luke Cage, because he. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, this is sort of on the. This is the opposite side of the coin, right? At the same time that you have these stories uh, that that demonize this entire half of the planet, um, you also have these stories that are fascinated with uh, in a very kind of fetishistic way. Uh, the the idea that there are secret wisdoms uh, in in these different tra- these the different philosophical and uh, spiritual traditions, right? Well, and it's also serves a propagandic purpose to have these things be secret that they hold that they can do that white people cannot do. Because when a white person learns how to do it, the way in which we know that Doctor Strange or Iron Fist or Jean Claude Van Damme in uh, whatever the Devil uh, Bloodsport is a master of that is in that at the end of those narrative arcs, they're able to beat the Asian. Is that yep. they hold these things secret because if we had them, we would be awesome. And you're just keeping the information away because you're afraid of us. It's propagandistic, you know. Yeah, white well, supremacy. It, it, absolutely. Well, and, and it does harken back to this very real period uh, in the you know uh, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, right, where uh, large chunks of the East are deliberately saying, "Nope, stay away, Europe. <laughs> we don't want nothing to do with you." Um, and, and it is sort of this this cultural tension that persists throughout media, right? Even centuries after this stuff, right? For sure. And yeah, it continues to be guilty of exactly that. Um, can we talk about how this movie doesn't know there's a depression going on? Yeah, and it's weird. How huh? Lamont is a crazy rich guy. It, it, yeah, this movie's got big rich uh, rich dude savior stuff, right? It, it's it's got uh, huge Elon Musk energy. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, that it, it is weirdly out of step with what we see in a lot of the other 90s movies and what, that sort of ongoing thesis that I've talked about with the 90s. It is in very much out of step with that. Yeah, and, like Ar- Arthur's mentioned The Rocketeer and his syllabus, and that's a film that's, like, decidedly working class, right? Like, it is all about being this grease monkey who ends up rubbing shoulders with the Hollywood elite in, in Los Angeles. Right. And uh, I think the lack of class awareness, the lack of class disparity uh, is part of what what weakens the film, because I I think there is a way in which the 90s Zeke guys was just in tune with it. I think The Shadow might have worked really well in 1984. I just want to throw that out there. No, that's interesting. I I kept wondering, you know, as when I was watching this with Beck, I mentioned, you know, it's it's there's definitely a universe where this movie came out after Sin City. It was in black and white, right? Like there, mm-hmm. there's a, and it's you called the spirit. spirit. Yeah. yeah. Which is a very bad movie. <laughs> uh, although I've only seen it the one time. So I, I wonder if I would feel differently than I did when I was 19 or 20, however old I was when that movie came out. Uh, but yeah, like it, it definitely feels like a movie that could have come out 
any time between the 70s and the 2010s for sure uh the shadow i mean yeah uh, just elements of it definitely feel like they they could have worked better in different decades or at the very least filmmakers and uh sensibilities in different decades would have lent themselves to this particular story a little bit better and i think class well, you know, we talked last week about class as a preoccupation in American cinema in the 90s, and it is weird. Maybe it's just too early uh, in the Clinton years uh, for, for us to get that that sort of awareness uh, of uh, larger inequality. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just bizarre for this movie to not even think about it a, a little bit. Well, I, I think it's just coming down to a failure in adaptation, right? And I think this mm. is both of the big, you know, I don't really think this is a film about the economics of the 1930s. No. Uh, so, I, but I also uh, the the Orientalism of it I think is a, just a failure in adaptation, right? To not it feels slavish to the material because I, I feel like probably most of these elements are just lifted from the original source material, right? You know, the the villain here is an original shadow villain. Uh, you know, I, I doubt the depression factored in too much to the, the stories because they were an escapism yeah, right, of the time. Yeah, and so that I, checks out. I, I think that's the, you know, it's not looking at a lens of, hey, here's the base of a story. How do we update this and make it reflective of the current times? Hmm. You know, I, I think it's just like, hey, here's the shadow. Here's what he does. Let's film it. That's and a very I, good point. I think it comes back to just a kind of a. Maybe not necessarily a failure, but I think it is in that adaptation of Let's the, just the source material. Recreate a shadow adventure instead of a yeah, tap. yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly what they're doing. You've got me wondering, you know, still about the source material. I, I am maybe I should go back and listen to some of the old radio plays or see if, uh, how available some of the, the pulp stuff is. But I bet there's a I bunch would, of it on YouTube. Yeah, I would I'm sure bet. there is. Yeah, um, because it definitely feels like, especially that the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Like there's definitely some pandering to depression kids shit. Right. So I am curious yeah. if, even if it's on the margins, there is some sort of talk of, uh, you know, don't get involved with the hoodlums down the road. Like this very sort of depression era moralizing, uh, be curious about how much it does rub shoulders, uh, with the economic considerations of the time. Yeah. Um, even if it's sort of in a, a not too direct way. And I think it actually is an interesting pairing with another movie, and I'm mad I didn't put it in my syllabus because I, I thought about it just a few moments ago, and that's The Mask of Zorro. Oh, yeah. Nice. I, I think there's a lot of those similar economic things kind of, you know, I think that's another movie where it's kind of in play but not really in play because of the the status of, uh, of Zorro himself financially. Yeah, it definitely. Uh, I, I'm curious what you guys think um because we're sort of running towards the end of things how much of that the rich dude savior stuff fits in as a, a lego piece or a puzzle piece with the uh you need a bad man to keep the bad men from the door right like those are two pretty prominent themes within this the sort of uh traditional hero archetype right whether it's uh you know a vigilante or a, a state sanctioned actor uh, that that sort of you got to be bad to catch the bad guys. That's that's pretty known and well tread ground. Uh, as is the uh, the the rich dude who equips himself uh, for fighting crime through his his resources, whether it's you know Batman, Green Arrow, the Shadow, the uh, uh, Iron Fist again, whoever it is. The, these are definitely two related tropes, but they're not necessarily the same thing. I guess I, I that's the last thing thought that I have is what's the interplay between these two different ideas, both, you know, kind of generally and in the shadow specifically. 
I, I wonder a little bit. I think absolutely there is this ongoing idea that a rich guy, you know, with the proper tools and the lack of supervision and regulation will save us. This sort of conservative impulse that is at work in lots and lots of superhero stories is definitely, uh, you know, in the DNA of the shadow. But I wonder about you getting a bad guy to take out a bad guy. I mean, I don't know that the movie is, I think the movie's kind of doing that. But I think it's not what it actually wants to do. I think what it wants to do is to tell the redemption story about how a mm. bad guy turned away from being a bad guy oh, and nice. lived kind of like in the uh, the most noble versions of the Batman rules, right? Where Batman doesn't kill. It, it, it seems like it wants to go there. I don't know if it gets there, but that seems to be the direction that the movie wants to take that character. Does that make sense? It's if if Batman could find redemption, right? Yeah. If he could find, I guess not redemption, but if he could find peace of mind. Right. Yeah, Batman doesn't need redemption because he was a victim. Yeah. But, but if he the, could find a peace to live. Yeah. With, yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, there is some interesting groundwork laid with Margot Lane, right? Penelope Ann Miller's character in, in her psychicness and her uh, perception of, of the shadow and his... Uh, his Jedi mind tricks not working on her or whatever. That definitely feels like if we had more of that teased out, we might've been able to get more uh, out of that sort of element within the story. Yeah. Because boy, she's, she's got nothing to do, but that's, you know, that is, it's a film from this era. So that's really not that surprising. Uh, but she's, she's great in the, the moments that where the film lets her do something. I, I will say, I think it's somewhat interesting. You know, she gets to rescue him in, in the, the the water thing, uh, and then she doesn't become a damsel. I think you know that's a, a, an interesting note as well. Yeah, her her dad's the damsel throughout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which it definitely avoids some of the you know the problems we talked about last week with Johnny Mnemonic, where it sets up this sort of potentially interesting d- gender dynamic and then fumbles it. Uh, you're right. This film doesn't really whiff it too bad on this stuff, other than just you know it doesn't really have anything for her to do. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't know what to do with that character. Yeah, I, and I think she is very interesting. But yeah, you're right. And, you know, there's something there to flesh out. I think would be really interesting. Yeah, it's way more interesting to make the female lead uh, almost kill the hero as opposed to uh, make her need to be saved by the hero. That's that's mm-hmm. way better. Come on. Well, I think this is where we're identifying the difference between uh, a narrative aesthetic. So the narrative aesthetic of the 1930s is super plotty, especially in the world of pulp fiction and of radio drama. It's very much this, this, and here's the master plan and uh, the whole idea of uh, monologuing, right, for villains that yeah. gets picked up by James Bond really begins in the 30s. And so those movies are driven by that rather than thematic character development. And I think part of what we're hitting on here is that these characters are all static and generally uninteresting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you got it. Uh, nobody has an arc. Everybody is is who they are, and they do what they do. As Arthur said, like, and that that is that's kind of a feature, not a bug, uh, of this, right? It is trying to be a one for one uh, adaptation, a little bit of, of sort of this era of pulp storytelling. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where it fails. I mean, obviously, that's also the case of '60s, uh, you know, sort of B list uh, comic book characters. I'm looking at you, Iron Man, Thor, Incredible Hulk. And uh, the the Marvel movies, what they do is they translate that and they create, you know, personality traits and arcs uh, for yeah. those characters, while at the same time continuing to do the smashy, smashy fun stuff that you want to see in those particular comic book characters. 
Well, and that does kind of get at a, a larger issue with serialized narratives and serialized characters, right? At a certain point, if you resolve a character's problems, and there's no further need to serialize the story. Right. I mean, well, yeah. 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 And that, I think that is something that, you know, these later, for, you know, all of the bad that I think certainly comes with our, our tendency towards serialized storytelling and, and modern, you know, studio releases, I, I think one thing they have figured out is that need for something at the very least resembling character work uh definitely not something that they were thinking about too hard in this era well i think they're unafraid to assume that you have seen the earlier movies yeah they're not especially about by by uh post uh you know avengers 2012 um yeah all bets are off they just assume that you've seen all the movies and they don't they don't care to really slow things down too much at that point for i guess that's not entirely true there are a couple in there that are uh uh, a little shaggy uh, mm-hmm. in that regard. But yeah, you very good point, Dustin. All right. Well, if we don't have any further thoughts about The Shadow, I believe it might be time to render a verdict. So what do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash for Alec Baldwin and The Shadow? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to very lightly put the Shout Factory version of this on my shelf. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely will do that. Mostly because I want to see. Uh, so I watched one little featurette about the production design, and it, they actually went and got interviews with Baldwin and you know and everybody kind of key players here. Uh, in some of the schlubbiest interviews I think I've ever seen, uh, Alec Baldwin's in like a a V neck tank uh, t shirt and maybe sweats or something, and like he looked <laughs> real schlubby. Uh, and so I just kind of want to see the rest of that. But I, I don't know. There's just something here. Uh, I would actually own this. Uh, the Rocketeer, the Shad- uh, the Phantom. Like I, I would like to have that on my show. I, I'm just very amused by this this cycle of films and Dick Tracy, of course. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, what do you say, Dalton? Yeah. Look, I was laughing my ass off the entire time. I kept waiting for the Shadow to say, um, "Of course, I'm in a tuxedo. It's after five. What am I, a farmer?" Like I, I, <laughs> I legitimately had fun laughing at uh, with and at this movie in equal measure. Um, yeah, Arthur's right. It's super entertaining for, for whatever else its problems are. There is, it's pretty fascinating uh, in, in its moments. Um, so I'm going to kind of do my same cop out from last week. No, you don't need to watch this. No, you don't need to own this. But yeah, streaming's sort of a great place for this film to live because it is uh, an oddity of a, a very, it's very of its time, very of its its movement um, and it's sort of a, a larger piece of like popular culture or a larger movement within popular culture, I guess I should say. It's, yeah, it's it, it's very fascinating, and uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, Alec Baldwin is Alec Baldwin, and that is for sure. And, and we, we did mention this already, but one more time, John Lone's just great. He's a good bad guy. He's really incredible in this with a, a role that very easily could have been uh, horrifying, <laughs> and he, he, he finds a way to make a meal out of it. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's worth a watch for sure. What about you, Dustin? Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to dissent and go ahead and say trash. I think there are better versions of what I like about this movie, which are the aesthetics. I think you should watch Mm. Joe Johnson's The Rocketeer, and I think you should also watch the weird mashup of that aesthetic with something out of the quasi-80s in Tim Burton's Batman of 1989, 88, 89, depending on how you date it. Um, But yeah, I I feel like those are better... uh, adventures into that aesthetic and more satisfying character arcs and narratives and so overwhelmingly i this movie's fine i think if you love those two movies a lot and would just want more and more of that then fine go ahead and grab it but if you're not that person i don't think it's worth owning so i would go ahead and say trash 
So there you go, dear listener. Um, Dalton, do you want to say social media things? Yeah, if you want to tell us about your Shout Factory uh, copy of uh, The Shadow, you can email us uh, all about those special features. Uh, good trash. Uh, excuse me. Uh, good trash. I'm sorry, Arthur, what is the email? I'm having a brain fart right now. Yeah, it's good trash genrecast at gmail.com. Thank you. I kept wanting to shorten the, the start of that. Good trash genrecast at gmail.com. One more time, uh, if you want to send us that long form feedback on Twitter, we're at good underscore trash. Uh, we're tweeting out links to the episodes, we're tweeting out. Uh, funny movie takes our friends have uh movie news of the day we're also tweeting out other podcasts uh in our orbit that's right there's other things uh that make up the good trash media network it's not just us uh, it's it's a lot of good friends as well um so go check out uh, the wheel of randy uh the praise down with heath and alex uh check out anything from the back catalog in uh, uh goodtrashmedia.com we might have some news on that at some point soon who knows i'm not gonna i'm gonna remain ev- evasive don't ask me about it um, but anyway, good underscore trash. If you want to follow us on Twitter, keep up to date with uh, both this show and other shows in, in our orbit. We'll, we'll make sure you stay uh, up to date. Uh, if you really want to erase uh, or complicate the parasocial barrier, you can go to at the praise down on Twitter. Their pinned uh, tweet is a link to their uh, Discord server if you want to join over there lots of people you've heard on uh that podcast and uh, this podcast as well uh and also just you know people who like the some of the same stuff just hanging out playing games talking about goofy stuff sharing uh uh food tips uh health tips all kinds of fun stuff we're having a good time uh i think that's all the social medias we need to worry about today and now it is time for the exciting conclusion where uh, arthur uh, tells us about the bitter fruit we're going to be consuming for next week <laughs> That's right. Next week's film is a modern take on found footage. Uh, mm-hmm. Debuted at Sundance, scored mm-hmm. $75 million on an $880,000 budget, hmm. features a diverse cast. Any, any takers? Dustin, you want to you wanna take a swing at this? Wonder Woman 1984. <laughs> uh, Arthur, give me, you, can you give me a decade? <laughs> you said modern. Yeah, it's... Uh, Was I wrong? Like, Five years ago? Yes, oh. terribly wrong. <laughs> Five years ago, found footage that uh, big numbers. Let me see the let me see the actual year. I think it's twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen? Yeah, let me see. Let me see. Yeah, twenty eighteen. Found footage. I got nothing. What is Citizen it? Citizen Kane. Yes, that's we're doing <sighs> Citizen Kane. Uh next week, uh we log on to social media actually <gasps> to take a look at searching. Oh shit! Of course, searching. Oh, what a! Oh, I'm so excited. I haven't seen that since theaters. Uh, yeah, John Cho, good movie. Uh, this will be fun. Dustin, you know about this one? Nope. You're gonna love it. Uh, yeah. So uh, there we go. All right. Well, there you go, dear listener. That's what's next. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.